How does religious prejudice impact our daily lives? Let's learn together. Welcome. I'm Samantha Deliberti, founder of the social impact hub, Orange You Going, and this is Progress Through Purpose. Progress Through Purpose helps you discover issues you're passionate about, like the environment, social equality, affordable housing, and more, and makes it easy for you to affect change while connecting with like-minded New Yorkers in person. Learn from experts working on the vital issues impacting the largest city in the U.S., and hear the solutions they propose. Then meet us in person. Join the Og Squad, a community of changemakers who meet to affect change together. Build new friendships, expand your network, and advance your career through civic engagement, all while uplifting our city. Learn more about the movement at orangeyougoing.com. Hey, Og Squad. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we are diving into religion, how it has shaped our society and continues to impact our daily lives, regardless of whether we are individually religious or secular. To dive into this conversation, this really big conversation, we are joined by Reverend Mark Fowler, the CEO for the Tenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding. Mark is a true New Yorker. He hails from Harlem and the Bronx, and he has a 20-plus year background in the New York City education system. So get ready to be schooled today. And I think it's really important to highlight identity for this conversation, and you will see why. Mark is a Black LGBTQ identifying ordained interfaith minister. We will talk more about what Tannenbaum does and its mission, but in a nutshell, Tannenbaum is a secular, non-sectarian nonprofit that works to confront hate and build respect for religious difference. As a side note, if you do not know what non-sectarian means, because I had to look it up, it means not involving or relating to a specific religious sect or political group. And finally, in the spirit of transparency and vulnerability for this conversation, I'd like to just share a little bit about my background. I am a non-practicing Roman Catholic. I attended Catholic schools all of my childhood education from kindergarten through high school. I'm also a member of the LGBT community, and I'm a white woman. Okay, we have all of our cards on the table now. (laughs) Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Samantha. So we're going to dive right into it. I touched on this a little bit, but Tenenbaum's work focuses on building respect for people of all faiths, as well as people of no faith. So can you explain a little bit how religion and religious inclusion impacts all of our daily lives, regardless of personal denomination, belief, or religious acceptance? Absolutely. I'm happy to try and tackle that. So I think, you know, it's important for us to recognize that religion and religious identity are powerful motivators for people. And even if you are not particularly a religious person or a practicing person, the presence of religion and religious identity in society, those motivators can often be misunderstood or taken advantage of. And when that happens, that can actually fuel the tension and the conflict and the division that we often see, the dehumanization and the violence, and even as far as acts of extremism and terrorism. We know that 80% of hate crimes worldwide are committed against religious minorities, and more than 20 large-scale conflicts worldwide have some kind of religious component. There are statistics that tell us that religious bullying of children 
is a reality for 50% of Sikh students, 42% of Muslim students, 23% of Jewish students, and 6% of Catholic families. And, you know, even if we look at some of the other data, at least 84% of the global population identifies with some kind of religious affiliation. And even in New York City ourselves, you know, I'm a native New Yorker and I'm very much of the mind that you can't throw a stick in any borough of the city of New York and not hit a house of worship. And you've got about 6 million people in the five boroughs identifying with some religious affiliation. We're the fifth most religious state in the United States. So even if you are not a practicing religious person, there is a presence of the impact of religion and religious affiliation in all of our comings and goings. And after 9-11, we've certainly seen a dramatic increase in hate crime attacks on Muslims, on Arabs, on people perceived to be Muslim and or Arab, um, largely in part due to racial stereotyping and media representations as people as terrorists. And in a documentary we're going to be screening, Refuge, uh, in September, Chris Buckley, who's one of the features of that documentary, talks about one of the ways in which he was radicalized to become a white supremacist had to do a great deal with the images of Muslims that he saw in media after the 9-11 attacks. So ultimately, religion and spirituality and faith is something that is affecting us all the time, wherever we are. So you, you, there, there's a lot to unpack there. Something that resonated with me when we first spoke was that these issues are still impacting us every day and that there's religious bias. That It's a bias, I think, that doesn't necessarily get as much attention as, for example, racial bias. But, you know, even when I heard about Tannenbaum, my own religious bias kind of bubbled up and I was like, oh, a, a religious nonprofit. I was just like, it's not for me. But what we're seeing in the news as we're across the country, whether it's local, where we're seeing an increase in attacks, for example, on people of Jewish faith, mm-hmm. and also just across the country, we're just seeing this, this polarizing effect. I actually mm-hmm. think we're seeing religion bubble up more and more. We just had attacks on somebody of the Muslim faith where Muslim men were murdered. So this is definitely something that is top of mind. And I think that it's it's really not talked about enough. So I'd, I'd like to kind of dive in now to the role of Tannenbaum. Obviously, this is impacting us day to day. And it's very, there's a lot of political ties. Actually, if you, in one of our conversations, you really talked a little bit about like, the ties between religion and kind of the politics of where we are today and how it's it's built up the United States. Are you able to touch on that? I know that's a really big conversation as well, um, but really just talk a little bit about how religion helped to shape some of even the racial inequities that we're, we're experiencing and seeing today. Sure. So let me just start. I want to re-emphasize, and I appreciate you sharing the definition of non-sectarian with your audience, with your listeners, because I think it's always important to remind people that while we work in the world of religion, Tenenbaum is not a religious organization. And I also want to say as a nonprofit with a 501c3 that we're not a political organization and we are not trying to advocate what we we do some advocacy work, but we are not trying to lobby anyone. So I just want to say that broadly. Then 
To answer the question, if we look at, let's just take New York City, land that originally belonged to the Munse Lenape Nation. Like if we were going to do a, an acknowledge, land acknowledgement, this land did not belong to Christians or any other religious group. Belonged to the Munsi Lenape Nation, spiritually based community. But manifest destiny, the idea that people had the authority of God to take land from people is built into the DNA of this entire area. We can't talk about the founding of our country, the development of our states and cities without looking at the unique fingerprint that religion has had on the creation of society in the United States and around the world as we know it. And that's not to say that we cannot have not evolved, but we are not at the end of an evolution where a respect for religious difference of people does not equal authority over people. That is a vision that we are working toward. When I think about Tannenbaum's work in particular and our the parts of our mission to promote justice and build respect for religious difference, we do that by transforming individuals and institutions so that they are able to reduce prejudice, violence, and hatred. And if we, as a secular and non-sectarian organization, we tend to look at our work from a grassroots, grass tops perspective, if you will, like a bottom-up, top-down dynamic, because change happens not on just one plane, but it happens as a totality. And so when we work with schools and school systems or corporations, large not-for-profits, government agencies, hospitals and healthcare systems, with the State Department and other departments connected to peace building, then we're working with those institutions so that the individuals within them have more capacity to actually take action on the places where they see inequity around the experience of people, whether they are religious or not. And we've kind of done our work around the world, but one of the things remains constant is that if there is a dynamic of supremacy in any way, then you're going to have to deal with the role that religion has played in that dynamic and in that structure of supremacy. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. A couple of points. I think that this idea of supremacy, I mean, we obviously hear white supremacy and acknowledge that there's a lot to be done around the racial differences. But one of your colleagues said something really I thought was very eloquent, which was that if you accept one identity, if you build, you know, acceptance and respect for one identity, you're building acceptance and respect for all identities. And so, you know, seeing that religion is, as you say, there's a, there's a very, very long history behind it. Being able to, you know, understand that history, understand how it impacts our day to day, how it impacts our societal structures, and then that enables you to then tackle it. So 
let's get into the tackling portion. You mentioned that, you know, you're working with both on the individual level, you're working on the more systemic level, working, you know, with, with these organizations. Can you dive in a little bit more to what that work looks like? Sure, sure. So, you know, our model is to raise awareness, build knowledge and implement strategies. And we feel that by doing those three things, when whether we're working with one school or an entire school system, whoever our audiences or our clients are, we're really trying to provide infrastructure for long-term change and more respectful and inclusive behaviors in institutions and organizations globally. So to accomplish that in our workplace program, for instance, we have had for the past 10 years a membership program. And let me say that we've been, this is our 30th anniversary year, we have been working with workplaces for over 25 years on these topics and on these issues. We work with everyone from the C-suite to senior managers to uh, line employees, direct uh, employees, and we also work at the institutional level. So we'll work with a company on their HR policies. We might advise them on internal communications around topics related to religion. We provide training for managers around how do you lead inclusively and include the dimension of religious identity as part of that strategy and that structure. We host a conference, uh, the Religious Diversity Leadership Summit in New York City, and we bring together industry leaders around the city and around the world to really look at and assess how can we build more infrastructure and strategies so that we can accomplish what our goal is, is that every employee in every workplace, regardless of their religious affiliation, knows themselves as respected by their employer. That's the the North Star for the work that we do around religion in the workplace. So, Mark, can I ask for uh, maybe an inside scoop here for all the managers, (laughs) the people managers listening? It sounds like there's a lot for them to learn um, through some of your programs. But is there one tip, one takeaway from some of your your educational programs that you offer for managers that you would suggest managers take away from this podcast? Absolutely. So I would say that kind of the bread and butter of our workplace work, as well as some of our other program, is to manage behavior and not beliefs. That as a manager, it is not your job to manage people's beliefs. We are free to believe as we will. What you can do is manage behavior. And kind of to the first, some of the first points we were making, many people believe that they are acting respectfully. They have the intention to be respectful. But the impact of their actions is often not what the receiver knows as respectful. And at some point, we're all going to step in it. We're all going to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. And what matters is being accountable when you know that the impact of your actions is distinct from the intent. This episode is brought to you by City and State Media, New York's premier outlet for New York politics and policy. Subscribe to the must-read daily newsletter, First Read, at cityandstateny.com. First Read is the quickest way to stay up to date on NY's biggest political and policy news. Always be in the know. Visit cityandstateny.com to learn more. 
Okay. I think that's very much leads into or relates to that leaning, leading with vulnerability, right? The ability to kind of take accountability for your actions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would just say one other thing that, so I've been working at Tannenbaum, September will be 15 years. And one of the things that I learned and one of my expansions, not just as a member of Tannenbaum and not just as the CEO of Tannenbaum, but as a human being, was recognizing what it meant and the privilege and the power that came from growing up in a Christian environment as a Christian person. Some of the inherent privileges that are afforded to people or expectations, even assumptions of your religious affiliation and how that plays out in life. And so there are many areas of identity where I don't experience the same level of privilege and power, but it was fascinating to me to actually understand that for those reasons that I mentioned before about just the structure of society, there are privileges that I can expect as someone who practices Christianity in some way that my Sikh, Hindu, Muslim, Native American counterparts cannot. So I am, as I mentioned at the top of of the podcast, I am Roman Catholic. I have Mm -hmm. definitely never considered my Roman Catholicism background to be privilege, a type of privilege. And so can you school me a little bit? What are some examples that I should be aware of walking through my day-to-day life of how my religious background affords me privilege, of course, in addition to my being white? Sure. So, you know, think about the holidays that you see on television or advertised in stores. Think about the days off uh, in a place of work and how many of them are religiously inspired. Think about what's considered other in your neighborhood or in communities that you're a member of in terms of religious affiliation? Like, what is the center that becomes other traditions become other? And what's interesting is, is that if we take that same model and put it in another part of the world, then if we look at India, for instance, you have a majority population there. And there are laws to make sure that people are treated equitably. And they don't always work. Very eye-opening for me. I hope others are learning along with me because it's definitely a little hard to hear like, hey, you've been blind to this massive, massive part of your life. So let me ask you one other question just because, you know, we all go to work and many, many of us either either have a boss or are a boss. What are your thoughts on, you know, in the workplace as part of your orientation, having a conversation with someone to say, you know, what are your needs as an employee here? There's the family perspective, there's the personal religious perspective, there may, may be other needs, maybe health needs, and maybe this, this is getting a little too deep into the, the training that, that you all provide, but clearly I'm very interested in it. What are your thoughts on, like, should that be a standard in the workplace? Well, I think that particularly from the perspective of leading inclusively, I do think that it matters that managers and even salespeople interacting with customers, whoever they might be at whatever level that they are, recognizing, remembering that like 84% of the world's population identifies with some kind of religious affiliation and that you might physically see articles of faith for some people, but not all. So the assumption, maybe instead of 
I don't have to worry about religion. Maybe the assumption could be I should be mindful that religion may be a part of this person's life. Not has to be, not certainly is, but could be. And I should be attentive to to that. Mm -hmm. I'll share a quick story with you. There was someone who worked at a company who, and the company did a big deal for Halloween. Like it was always a big deal. There were costumes, there were parties, they would have things for kids to come in and all this kind of stuff. But this particular person did not celebrate Halloween. And for them, it was something that was just contrary to their faith. So when their manager came to ask them, like, you know, what are you going to be doing and how are you going to be participating? They very, you know, they said, you know, it's really not, it kind of runs counter to my own religious beliefs. I'm not really going to be participating. And the manager was like, fine, but completely understand, you know, no worries. The next year, the same manager asked the same employee, so what are you going to be doing for Halloween this year? And it's as if the person was invisible and had never said anything about that this is not something that I want to participate in. So then you have to ask yourself, when that person resigns or asks to be transferred to another department, could that have been avoided? Could we have kept that talent and really nurtured and you know supported that person in their individual experience? Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that applies to many different many different conversations, right? It's it's as if I came out in the workplace, mentioned that I'm with my partner for X number of years. And and then the next year, for whatever reason, or the conversation came up again, and it feels like you're not being listened to. So yeah, that's that's very insightful. So there's a ton that Tannenbaum does at the organizational level. But let's talk a little bit to our individual listeners. What's your call to action for our listeners? And how can they get involved as an individual, if their workplace is not already a member, how can they get involved with Tannenbaum? So thanks so much for the opportunity to share this with people. First thing I would say is that it's important for all of us to recognize and uh, know that we can do something at the individual level. That there is, it's not just up to institutions to create this environment that is respectful of religious difference. That as individuals, we can do that. I would say that. One of the things that we can certainly do is to talk about our or invite people to participate in our 3000 conversations for building respect for religious difference. This is our 30th anniversary year, as I mentioned. And one of the things that we wanted to start cataloging and chronicling were the ways in which people are working around religious diversity, are working to build a respectful, inclusive environment, but don't necessarily have a place to share about that or talk about that. So we have a platform where people can leave either a a video recording or actually type in an experience that they've had or something that they've learned around building respect for religious difference. So I think that that's one thing that people can do. There's another activity that we're engaging in. We have, I mentioned earlier, an upcoming screening of a documentary called Refuge. That's going to take place on September 13th from 6 to 8 p.m. on Zoom. And the story is really around this man, Chris Buckley, who is a former white supremacist and a leader, was a leader in the KKK. And he uses the power of intentional conversations 
to actually find healing from the people he once hated and healing for himself in terms of some of the broken places for himself that had never been attended to. And he does this work with a Muslim cardiac doctor and members of the community that he lives in who are also refugees. And the screening is going to be followed with a Q&A by Chris himself and another former extremist, Arno Michaelis, discussing really the practical steps for hosting your own conversations, but also what is that pathway and journey for building respect within and across religious communities. So those are some things that are coming up. And I would also direct people to our YouTube channel. We have a great number of programs that have been captured on YouTube. Some of our Workplace Summit presentations are on YouTube. So Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding, you can find us there and you know, kind of join the party, if you will, and maybe use some of those videos and interviews as conversation starters. Great. And that the sorry, what was the name of the movie you just mentioned, the movie screening? It's called Refuge. Refuge. So when you were talking about that, you know, I'm trying to be more aware of myself and my my reactions. When you were talking about that, I had a reaction, right? Sure. To a member, to even just hearing the word KKK. It's an immediate visceral reaction. And I'm like, can can somebody really change? And I think um, hopefully after watching this screening and, and hearing from the individual who's featured in it, I will get a little closer to that optimism of believing somebody can change. But it just goes to show that, you know, you have to, it's all on all sides, right? Um, yeah. Being able to have this acceptance and actually listen. And I think that we're seeing that in our, across our, our country right now is this inability or lack of really wanting to listen to people with another perspective and meeting people where they're at. You know, I'm, I'm very interested to hear what his journey was and what that first conversation was that started him down this path of rejecting what is a hateful group. So... And, and I'm not going to give away anything of the <laughs> documentary because I've seen it and it's fantastic. It's really an amazing piece of work. But I would say, you know, a place to maybe enter the conversation, to enter uh, looking at the documentary is to consider for yourself, where are the places where you may have experienced some kind of wounding that's still open? Like it feels like it's healed over, but there's something that tugs away at you. And whatever that is, doesn't necessarily have to be a religion. And the way in which you might respond if you didn't keep a really close hold on yourself. Because I think in order for us to move forward to a society where people can respect religious difference, we all have to do our own assessment of the places where we don't do that. Yeah, that's, and that's, that makes that makes Chris's experience far less unaccessible. Right, this idea of self healing in order to be accepting and and respectful of others. Very, there's a lot here. There's a lot of self reflection and individual kind of work that needs to happen in order to get to a place where we are all really seeing each other as members of the human race, right? We're all here on this planet together. So Mark, thank you so much for your time. This was uh, incredibly enlightening for me. I hope for others as well. I've learned a lot. 
the event that Mark mentioned, the screening of Refuge, is an Og Squad event. So be sure to visit orangeyougoing.com to find details about that and uh, join us and learn more. Mark, thank you so much and have a, a great rest of your week. Thanks, Samantha. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Tune in next week to hear from the Food Bank for New York City. Learn about why so many New Yorkers are food insecure and how we can help. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really helps to promote the podcast and get more listeners like you and spread the word. So let's engage New Yorkers together. Get the most of Orange You Going, New York's social impact hub. When you join the Og Squad for free, you receive event notifications curated to your interests. Never miss a change-making event. Orange You Going to be there? Are you hosting a social impact event? Post it for free on orangeyougoing.com to reach the most engaged New Yorkers. When you post with us, we promote it to our email list of nearly 10,000 subscribers across social media and on orangeyougoing.com. Let's engage New Yorkers together. 